Hey gang, welcome to episode 32 of the No Priscinium podcast, your podcast about immersive and interactive theater and its ilk. Uh, I'm your host, Noah Nelson, and you're joining us for a very special edition of the show. Uh, we've got the all curator edition. That means New York, San Francisco, and LA all represented in the house right now. We're doing this call over Skype, uh, but we're going to massage the audio. And what you guys at home don't know, but what the boys on the other end of the Skype call know is I just did that entire intro looking up out towards my living room window because that's what I usually do when I'm recording this part of the show. Even though I have two happy, smiley faces in front of me, I'm just that much of a creature of habit. So that's me. That's Noah from New York. We've got... Uh, this is Zay Amsbury. I am talking to you from Crown Heights in Brooklyn in New York City. Um, uh, I Are we doing a little intro here? Should I say yeah, something? Or? Yeah, say, say, uh, tell, tell the crowd a little about you, just a little about yourself, because they've heard you before. So Sure, sure. Yeah, you've heard me before. I mean, I, I, uh, I'm uh, mainly a playwright. I have an undergraduate and graduate degree in playwriting and theater history. Um, and I grew up in the Bay Area, much like Noah, um, but I moved to New York City in order to uh, go to grad school out here for theater, and then I stayed, and it stuck. Um, and I saw Then She Fell, and it uh, it was really good, <laughs> and it led me to a lot of different thinking about um, about what theater uh, can be, and, uh, and that's led me to this, and then Noah sort of parted the seas and showed the way to a no proscenium um, curated list of events. And there was nothing like this in New York City. There's still nothing like this in New York City except for what we do. And it's a pleasure to bring all of these events to our uh, listeners and readers. Fantastic. Speaking of the Bay Area, speaking to us from the Bay Area is... Hey guys, I'm Albert Kong. Um, I am now back in the Bay Area. I was actually in Crown Heights too. I was living over there for a little while. Oh, nice. I got back to the Bay Area now. Um, uh, just a couple months ago and uh, came back to happily uh, help curate the new versions of the SF uh, edition of No Proceedium Podcast. Or, uh, sorry, mailing list. Not the podcast. I'm not doing the podcast here. Not yet. Uh, <laughs> just for this episode. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a game designer, um, an artist. I'm, I'm creating uh, live experiences and, uh, and, and ex- uh, opportunities for public play. Uh, for me, the thing that's exciting about this kind of theater and this kind of experience design is that it allows us to misuse and reappropriate the public spaces and the, uh, the expected uses of spaces that we, that we, uh, that we live in every day. Um, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to being a bigger part of the scene. And uh, I, I don't actually have any theater experience, so I'm coming straight from uh, from games and uh, and, and uh, hooliganism. But um, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm excited to uh, to be making my own theater and my own uh, my own acts of uh, of um, uh, experiences that uh, that you know, change the way that we we understand how to inject narrative into the world. That's fantastic. Uh, one of the things I'm excited about having Albert run the SF edition uh, aside from having boots on the ground is that he comes from a different tradition than Zay and I do. But this is one of the things about the space is that the space, which is a very tech industry way of talking is that there's such overlap. Like for me, the, the whole idea of what we might call immersive entertainment, whether we're talking about theater, an escape room, 
a virtual reality experience or some kind of live action game is it's it is the immersion it is the getting lost in the world that has been created and creating space for the audience to do that uh in the mo- in in the most visceral way possible and that each of the different regions sort of has their own take on what that is and their own capacity uh, is really exciting. Um, on that note, we're, we're a little more structured than usual today because we've got three of us and, and we're going to need to be a little more structured. So I wanted to start off by looking back on the, the year that just passed and just talk about, you know, what we all dug the most. So Zay, uh, you're up at bat for the first round. Uh, what was it that turned your head in New York City? Um, there were two, I, I thought a lot about this and I, I have to mention two different things when I think about what I dug the most in New York City. And um, what I like about these two pieces is how incredibly different they are. Um, the first one is um, Together We Are Making a Poem in Honor of Life, directed by Michael Tara Garver. And that piece, um, I mean, first of all, the the immersive part of that piece, it, it wasn't like a, um, uh, a sleep no more or then she fell in the sense that you're like wandering around a large space and you either have like a sort of on the rails experience or a more free form experience where you can go from room to room. Um, you were sitting in a, and we talked, we spoke about this on the podcast, but in this piece, you're sitting in a circle of chairs and they're in, in a school, in a public school that's on the Lower East Side in uh, New York City. And there are two actors who are portraying a husband and wife um, whose child was killed in a school shooting. And they're going to this encounter group. And the audience is the encounter group. But the mother and father and this husband and wife are really poor and they have other kids and so they can't afford for both of them to go on the same night so even though both of the characters are there they're never in the same place in the same time even though you're in the same place in the same time and so it creates this incredible i'm getting chills right now even like right now i'm getting chills even thinking about the experience because it casts you in a role and you experience these characters but this this dislocated space and time creates a very interesting and odd and unique um kind of immersion into their experience because you're experiencing their lives in a way that they don't and yet Mm. they're engaging with you they're looking at you they're they're asking for companionship they're asking for witnessing they're asking for all of the stuff from you um, but the piece also had all the sort of normal site-specific elements. Like the night that I was there, this alarm went off unexpectedly. Um, the janitor came by who was not an actor, who was literally the janitor who was there that evening to clean up the public school. And it was such a like intimate and specific and um, – I, I, I want to use the word small, but I don't want to diminish what the piece is because it's actually a really expansive and relatively mm. epic piece – um, but it was just really specific, you know. It wasn't in three floors of a building, you know. There weren't um, 10, 20, 15 actors. Um, it, it sounds like it really And created, yet it was deeply immersive. It yeah. sounds like it really created, like, a, a, an intimate moment. I mean, it, it feels weird sometimes to throw the term intimate around because there's, well, there's the sexual connotation of intimacy. But 
I think that's one of the the problems we have as a culture is we don't talk about emotional intimacy all that much. And one of the things that, that this form excels at is creating emotional intimacy. I mean, if you even think about a live action game, look, get nerdy and think about LARPs. They create an intense amount of emotional intimacy. Like you will see clicks form inside a LARP that then get reflected into the real world. And then things that happen in a LARP will either be psychodramas playing out click drama, or they will bleed out of the LARP and cause all kinds of problems because of the sort of crucible that this sort this form of, of imaginative intimate work creates. Uh, it's, you walk through the threshold of an immersive experience, no matter what it is, and you're sort of being asked to bring your passion to the fore, to like wake up your emotions to what's going on. I mean, um, it gives you like immersive stuff gives you an opportunity to actually be in the space with the actors. You know, like you're you get to be a part of that world, and by doing that, you have an opportunity to actually participate in the kind of emotions that they're trying to express. Yeah. Well, yeah. And there's a, and, and there's a way in which in, um, in this play, um, there is a way in which your, your presence, like the fact that you were an audience member, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a purely voyeuristic experience. And by voyeuristic, I don't mean anything pejorative or bad. Um, but in this case, your job, because you are part of this encounter group, your job was to listen to them. Your job was to hear them. Your job was to watch mm -hmm. them tell these stories and go through these experiences. And even even in like a relatively uh, passive mode, like you were always sitting on a chair. You never got up. You never moved around. But you were still actively, pardon me, you were still actively engaged in the experiences and transformations of these characters. It was very intense and wonderful. You're given a role. When yes. You're, uh, yeah. That's really easy to play. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, you're, you know? you're LARPing, right? Yeah. I was LARPing. I was, I was LARPing the post-traumatic effects of school shootings. Yes, it was a joy. Well, the, the fact that you were given a role, this idea of casting the audience, like this is one of the terms of art that's starting to emerge mm -hmm. in this form. And, and indeed, it's, it's, it's something that people borrow from a certain point of view from things like Nordic LARPs, where you cast the audience, you cast the participants in a specific role. And, you know, I, I used to have a rule of thumb that, you know, if I saw a chair when I went to an immersive, then that it had failed. Like, that was my rule. And this feels like it it violates, it's the, not violates, but it's the exception to the rule or the, the exception that proves that the rule is wrong. And, and I love that. Yeah. Because I love that the key is that she knew who the audience was going to be. And and what they ha what they their presence would bring to the actors and i and that's that level of thinking and i think in terms of the design like if you're thinking about what the audience or what your participants are going to be bringing to the form um what sort of skills that they're going to be bringing to space i mean i'd be curious to see people who like did that kind of thinking when it comes to like an escape room i just got an invite to uh some people who put on like a horror thing over the the heart the spooky season are doing another thing that sounds like just a weird more like art uh immersive ish but maybe mm. with some horror elements and and i don't want to spoil too much because i don't think they'd like me doing that but 
they there's a series of five questions they ask that are related to the theme. It's like uh, we, we want to do this that the other thing. And so already they're like, we want to tailor this experience to you. Mm. Uh, and I know that like, all right, these things are gonna are gonna pop up. But that's very much casting specifically to the the. The, the, the individual participant like yeah. like I know something about you I'm going to start making art out of you um, I, we'll just, of, go oh, sorry a lot of things that my uh, that my like game designer friends have been uh, sort of griping about when they go to immersive theater things is that there's not actually any agency that like you know you go through and you watch this narrative but you don't actually get to do anything and I think we're starting to see a little bit more um, of people having maybe not changing the story, but by giving them a more detailed role um, and, and casting the audience in that way, I think it allows people to feel like they have a job, they have something to do, and they have, a, they have actual um, characters that aren't just, you know, uh, eyes that are floating around. You know, like that's the, the, the uh, if, if um, no proscenium open frame, like, like sleep no more style stuff is just like eyes that get to like wander around everywhere else. Like the casting gives you a body. Yeah. It gives you something to do. Um, I mean, and just, just to round out what I dug most about NYC and I realized that this is like, I don't know, playing to the audience or maybe particularly geeky, but blade rave, man. I mean, I mean, that was, I didn't, I can also going to put this under big surprises cause I wasn't. It, it's hard to imagine what it's like to actually be among a bunch of people while the blood is raining down on you and everyone's tearing their shirt off. And, I mean, I don't know about agency or casting the audience or anything. All I know is that when, when, when a Wesley Snipes analog is up on stage and there's blood raining down upon you and you're dancing like crazy with other people, it was... It, it, it was transformative isn't quite the word, but it was one of the most <laughs> extreme and fun experiences of of my life. And I wasn't sure that that it would be possible for that to live up to what one might imagine. But Blade Rave was uh it was pretty fantastic. Awesome. All right, Albert, you are up. What uh what what uh what did you dig in the Bay Area this year? Man, it's uh, it's hard to hard to pick. There's a couple things, and and partially like I've uh, coming back uh, in November. I was I was in New York for for uh, nine months or eleven months before that, but nine months of 2015. Um, but interestingly, something that I would say that I dug most, I was engaging in the most while I was in New York, and I can't really talk about it. So it's gonna be really like disappointing to our audience but i'll say what i can that's uh that's the uh the the um nonchalance folks who are the, the people who brought a, a jejun institute into the scene a, a couple years ago um have been running and have since shut down uh, a, a project called the latitude society and this was something that's uh, sort of uh, very different than uh, than a theater experience. It was sort of a community experiment. Um, and you know, if you really want to know about it, you can look up more about it. the uh, The main thing that we were sworn to is uh, is is absolute discretion when we uh, when we get involved this, in this kind of thing. But um, suffice to say, it was a. Uh, I, I like to reference everything in terms of LARPs these days. So it was a cult <laughs> LARP. And and we were all we all joined a cult and did uh, did various things, but it was really interesting the ways that they played with the ideas of community and the ideas of activity and ritual and uh, and sort of um, 
metaphors of religion and things like that that made a really really powerful experience that lasted uh for me you know for uh for over over the course of the entire year um and uh, and the kind of uh kind of um things that came out of it you know it's more than just an experience of uh of the lore that they were trying to express but um but also it was actively transformative to a lot of people i think it made it gave a lot of people the empowerment that it took to to create experience uh, experiences and uh and and get a new sense of the world um that's super vague and that's probably super disappointing to anyone who doesn't know what's going on already so i'm gonna give you another one um, and uh and, well and uh, on, and, and, and to yeah. back up what you said about you know you can sure, find sure, stuff yeah. out there, there are a couple interesting long form article or there's one interesting yeah. long form article out there about about the latitude and and you know the the classic thing about the nonchalance folks is that they're they are really good at getting people to to fight club it you know we do not talk about you know jejun institute we do not talk about the latitude society uh, i wasn't up in the bay area i didn't get to participate um there, there was some interesting things about the model they were working on um and and one of the frustrating things about <clears throat> about nonchalance as a, as someone observing from the outside is that uh, they are they are sort of dedicated to uh, blurring the lines so much that you sometimes can't tell when something's intentional and when something is a total accident. And but isn't that kind of genius? Like, it it, kind it of is of... it is on it is on one level, but when you're trying to like when you are trying to figure out like okay, can we make something like this or like how does one make something like this? It is singularly frustrating mm -hmm. because the and and I'm not going to ask you to, to to reference I'm not even going to look at your face and there's no there's no video recording of this. So we can talk about this offline but like with the way it ended, I do not know if it if it was intended or if it, or if it to end that way, or if they just sort of like uh, we sort of fumbled, and it's really interesting because I knew before it even started that they were looking to do to do something even even tighter knit, or or at least the initial impulse to do something tighter knit than the Jejun Institute wound up being, uh, and that indeed you know one of the producers for that had you know gone off and you know now works for Imagineering, and other producers stayed and worked on that. So like one person got more broad with what they do, and they sort of drilled down. And what I love about this entire world of alternate reality games and immersive worlds and everything is that we have this broad range from Disneyland to the Jejun Institute, from Broken Bone Bathtub to Sleep No More. There's this huge space uh, that can contain multitudes. Um, but yeah, like like I I have no clue uh, it, what was intended. But you have something yeah. else for the people who. I mean, who don't. I, I would say just I, I think there's a, like out of respect to the community, I'd say that that it was uh, it, it did end um, it did end for real. And, yeah. Uh, and it wasn't an intentional thing. It wasn't like uh, it wasn't like a trick or anything to throw people off the course. It's just uh, um, you know not things don't last forever. And I think there was this uh, this attempt at creating something that was like uh that was almost eternal um but it's hard to to do that with a production at this scale you know it costs a lot of money and it creates and, and it needs a lot uh, of people yeah um so I, I think i think it ended before its time i think that's the uh that's that's the consensus here that's the takeaway all right what was the uh yeah, you had yeah. another one for us 
Yeah, yeah. So um, I uh, and and this isn't something that's new, um, but I, but probably it's uh, something that's uh, less accessible to to um, uh, people who aren't deeply involved in uh, in in this kind of scene. I've I've started playing with LARP more, and I've started exploring like uh, like what the what the Nordic LARP um, looks like, what American freeform looks like. There's this huge, really deep. Um, community of people who are creating uh, really really amazing experiences through uh, through the conventions of LARP um, and I've had I've had um, the the luck to uh, to be involved in some of these I've, I've gotten involved in some of these uh, the communities I, I actually played a handful in, uh, in New York and then I came when I came back here I, I uh, had a chance to play a couple more um, one that was really powerful for me it was like a four-hour game called my daughter the queen of france and in this one um you are playing a group of friends of a character named william shakespeare who is a playwright who um who isn't necessarily william shakespeare like the uh, as, as the kind of facilitator the playwright um or the uh, the the uh, william shakespeare character can kind of define what the world is and you kind of all collectively create this uh this space and these characters who uh who have a relationship to william shakespeare and his daughter um but they have this great uh this this great uh setup of creating scenes and um the the uh, the conceit is that william shakespeare has an estranged relationship with his daughter and he's trying to use theater to to figure out how to repair that or or to understand his relationship with his uh, with his family better and so he'll call on all the players all the uh, the the other players to play out um, scenes from his estranged relationship like going back from the moment that uh, that they had a big falling out and so um, so I was playing like a, a uh, old college friend of William Shakespeare who is this uh, this sort of uh, burnt out um, uh, like um, not quite famous, but had a couple great successes um, of a playwright, and uh, and you know we 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 were able to to construct these scenes, and none of us were like were like playwrights or actors, but it's amazing how some of these games, if you have the right people, if you have people who are um, who are game to to put themselves out there a little bit. The set it, the setup of the game and the prompts that it gives you and the kind of uh, work that it asks you to do ahead of time, which isn't really that much, allows you to really, really get into the character and create a really amazing world together. Like I'm, I've, I've been endlessly impressed with um, uh, games lately and and theater that that really brings the players into that character it's really hard to just say to someone like you know now you are a cop or whatever and you yeah. have to like go and do this right escape games do it really well because they give you a really really obvious defined task you have to like solve this thing well um, i mean nothing a, nothing a helps actor, acting like a clear goal and obstacle nothing helps acting like a clear goal and obstacle yeah yeah um so i'm, I'm just like i'm really learning a lot from uh, from how larps um are are getting their players to uh to be invested hmm. What I love is that what you're describing sounds to me like a giant theater game, you know, like, oh, they're mm -hmm. working out f scenes, you know, going back for a particular period of time, they're getting cast in different scenes yeah. and they're freeforming it through. And so this 
the, what Nordic LARPs do, and I love the fact that there's something called American Freeform because I didn't know that. Uh, they they really they cross that line between theater and and a role playing game. And I think back to in the '90s when I was vampire LARPing, and I would describe I mean, the first group I did it with was with my high school theater troupe. And then we, you know, carried that on into college and I would always get disappointed when I had gamers. I preferred taking <laughs> theater people and turning them into gamers than taking gamers and trying to turn them into theater people. And it was really hard to integrate people who were doing a, a, a traditional LARP. We'd get there, we would sometimes play on the UC Berkeley campus and there were there was another group that did as well and we'd go look at their game and they were a bunch of people standing around and they did what I called tabletop standing up. Yeah. You'd see like people standing in circles, you know, talking about what their characters were doing. And then I would turn to our group and I'd be like, We're running around a third of the campus, we had to like give borders, say don't go too far because we don't want to not find you all night long. But like we'd be running around for hours on end, and you know, it was a it was a disappointing night when we had to break it down to the rules. It was much more about the acting for us, mm-hmm. but we were still a lot of like high school theater kids and college theater kids, and these things are not that dissimilar. Like these things are really really deeply related, and I hope that that you bring a lot of this stuff to the to the SF newsletter. And there's a guy down yeah. here, Aaron Vanek who's like trying to get LA LARP scene, uh, like Nordic style LARP scene off the ground. Like he's really hot to is do he it. The West, is he one of the Westfinder guys? I, I don't, group? I don't okay. know. Oh, we'd have to, we have to compare notes. Like he might yeah. be, I don't, I know that, I know that Aaron actually has an educational LARP company. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's one of his businesses. Uh, and he's also for a number of years ran a, uh, HP Lovecraft film festival. Uh, so, yeah, yeah a, one of the, the great things about LARP, I mean, it, it totally like is uh, straddles that line between theater. Like, I mean, it, it pushes as far as theater can go, you know, as as far as like players uh, actually play. Um, but uh, but I think the the stuff that's happening right now in the in the scenes um, in in Nordic LARP style stuff and uh, and and the scene in the United States, which is a little bit smaller, um, is there, it's getting more into pushing people to really feel and really act and really get invested uh, into the worlds that they're they're creating. And that stuff's so something that's happening happen in the Bay Area. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, I, pl- I plan this this coming year. I have, a, I have a very good friend out here who's really into the Nordic LARP scene in New York City, and it's it's a goal of mine to begin per- to participate in, in a Nordic LARP. Just, just yeah. I must, I mean, I must admit, like as as someone who has been involved in theater and who has um, uh, been involved in tabletop D&D when I was younger I've never I've never quite done the LARP crossover like I've never had that experience and I'm a little I'm a little I'm a little scared I have to admit like I'm a little frightened of it but my friend Liz has been pushing for a while and she knows all the people so um, I will have that experience at some point in 2016. Yeah, I mean the East Coast has a ton of it. It seems to be like the the biggest scene in, in the United States, as far as I know. Uh, the Bay Area is a little bit lighter, but uh, but but it's around. The Big Bad Con in Oakland is uh, is something that uh, that uh, runs a lot of uh, a lot of local t- um, uh, pieces here as well. All right, well, we're gonna have to get that stuff yeah. rock and roll. And we got Weird Con down here. Some of the stuff happens there, but there's a lot more traditional sort of hack and sash LARP. I mean, that's the thing is like. I've thought a couple of times about what to curate down here in terms of Nordic style LARPs. And I just haven't seen enough of them. We've, we, there was one that Aaron was doing called Falling Stars. And I know some stuff happens at WeirdCon, but I also know there's a lot of uh, hack and slash stuff that happens there. And just to be blunt, like as as much as the Nero style, as much as Boffer Foam Swords are, are fun and interesting to me, they're not 
what this stuff is about. And yet the Nordic LARP stuff, which is all about psychological games, uh, or there's the one that was about why the last man, which is like a weekend long yeah. camp out that, that really, even, yeah, that, that was for women only. And it actually, at one point there was a massive controversy because, um, there, there was trans women wanted to play and some of the organizers didn't want trans women to play because they were saying, well, you know, this is about, the biology. So like, like you right. want everything to crack open and have people, you know, wow. boom. But yeah, it was based off. Do you know if Brian Vaughn, do you know if Brian about knows about this? The articles have made it around Cause I'm going to so text much. him tomorrow. I'm sure that Brian knows about it. Oh my goodness. I don't think it was an official thing. Oh, it but, definitely uh, was. No, 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 no. And there was that last year was the, uh, was the Harry Potter LARP that happened in, uh, in like a castle in Poland. Well, right? and somebody oh. did a Hamlet oh. LARP at Elsinore. Oh, wait, I, I found out yeah. there's a, there's a bar in the Lower East Side that is called Lovecraft's and it's a Lovecraft themed bar. And I went there the other day just cause I was going to the party I wanted to drink beforehand. And I found out from this dude that is there that they have these regular, I don't know if, LARP, I suppose LARP is the right word, but they have these regular Harry Potter role-playing events there where like everyone writes a character and they come up with the whole scenario and then they go to Lovecraft's and then they do the thing. And so I'm on the mailing list now and it's amazing because the whole mailing list is in character. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I've given thumbs up. I'm giving thumbs up on the video. I mean, with with like Harry Potter's real, right? Like, there's, there's so yeah, like, exactly. That's the yeah. So what I'm hearing is that it is the fate of No Proscenium in 2016 for us to start doing a tiny, at least the tiniest bit of coverage of the LARP scene. We're going to figure out how we're going to do that, but it's clear if if the three of us are nerdily excited enough about it, then clearly that's a North star to pilot by. Um, let's talk about surprises. Um, uh, oh no, wait, it's my turn. Yeah. My turn it's your for, turn. For, for, for what we dug most. What you I'll, dug I'll, most. I'll, I'll make, I'll make it short. Uh, look, this is going to come as no surprise. Hamlet mobile, Hamlet mobile, Hamlet mobile, Hamlet mobile. Spend the next 20 minutes talking about Hamlet mobile. For those who have never heard the show before, if this is your first time at Hamlet mobile podcast, uh, what Hamlet mobile is, is the brilliant Lauren Ludwig and Monica Miklas, of Capital W to the creative minds behind Lost Moon Radio here in LA. Uh, they created a, a, a somewhat devised, somewhat written theater piece about a itinerant theater company called The Moving Shadow who worked out of a converted like AT&T van producing uh, scenes from Hamlet in the back of the van. And sometimes outside the van. And they blurred the line between the the world they created. So some of, there was, I think there were uh, eight pieces. Maybe there were six pieces. I can't remember the moment, which is sad. I saw, I was, one of the, I was the first person to see them all, very excited, nerdily. You're like, <laughs> oh boy. It's like, I had to go far and wide, guys, to find something that I could be the nerd who said, first on. You collected on. them all. I collected <laughs> them all, right? You know, I had to get really specific. Um, and the... The, the setup is that there were four actors in this company and sometimes the scenes were just the interpretation of Hamlet and sometimes there were scenes where they were themselves and their characters and sometimes there were scenes where they were just quote unquote themselves. It was like a piece of meta theater mm. and each piece you saw worked completely fine on its own 
But if you, the more you saw, the more it added up into this, this larger piece. And let me tell you, I've messed around with ARGs. I've seen a lot of transmedia stuff where people are trying to create that line between the singular unit of story, of entertainment, of, you know, the product, whatever you want to call it, and the bigger picture. And I see so many people fail because they they can't get the blade balance right of this thing is entertaining on its own, this thing is interesting on its own, this thing is worth its time on its own, and it plugs into a larger structure. It's it's a alchemical formula that is often botched. They nailed it. And I don't know if that's because of the way they were working or the strictures of the idea, but they fucking nailed it. And I only wish it could have a long run and legs far beyond what it did. But often with the nature of this stuff, things are expensive. It was tied to the Fringe Festival. It had a little bit of revival afterwards. And Jose, you got to see it when it did a little bit of its extension. One, run, like, just one piece. Just one piece. And and the van itself was exquisite. It was like amazing. Yeah. Um, and I, I just wish more people will get a chance to see it that they will that it will be resurrected at yeah some i i didn't get a chance to so that was that i was didn't get a chance to to uh have the experience of putting all the pieces together i only saw one scene but i mean the thing that was fascinating to me about this about the, there were two things that were really fascinating to me about the scene um i guess on a theatrical level i mean you're you're in a van it was me and uh, No Proscenium friend Mackenzie Fergins, and we were in a van with first Hamlet and then Ophelia, and there was this. It created this wild experience where it starts out with um, a monologue about a guy who's having a hard time dating women, who's dated lots of women and has had some difficulties with that, and then moves into a scene between Hamlet and Ophelia. And they did this fascinating thing where they took some of Ophelia's lines and put them in Hamlet's mouth and took some of Hamlet's line and put them in Ophelia's mouth. And there was something about that that just cracked open the scene. Like it made it um, intimate and human and unpredictable in this almost dangerous way, but also still intimate and immediate. And, you know, and you're in a van, so it's two audience members, two actors, very intimate. Um, and... Uh, yeah, it was fascinating. I, I really, really hope that they, well, I mean, I hope everything comes to New York City eventually, <laughs> which is the point of living in New York City. <laughs> what, do you, what, do you think, uh, what do you think is like the biggest thing that can be pulled out of that for, for other uh, productions? Uh, for me, it's the, well, the biggest challenge they had was throughput, right? Because they crafted these like 10 minute pieces and you can only fire it off so many times. So that's a puzzle to be very much aware of um, and to find a way to sustain it. Like, how do you sustain a ticket price? And they were giving this away for free as part of the festival. Like, they, they did a bunch of fundraising at a time. And that's, that's a, a core way to do it. One of the beauties of crowdfunding, that they, they had time set aside for backers to come uh, and see pieces. That was part of the deal that people got for backing it. But other than that, it was open to everybody. Um, how to ticket for something like that is a puzzle that needs to be solved. Um, but the power and the value, the emotional value of putting people into those clothes uh, quarters and that you could do that in the back of a van. So yeah. you don't need you don't need a permanent brick and mortar space. You can do a pop up. Yeah. You can do a pop up that's intimate 
that's designed uh, and that you can get people through and then send them on on their way. Um, that's that I think is the biggest thing to take away. You know, I I wonder about that. I wonder that. I mean, in thinking about about the future of this sort of thing, it, it it's surprising to me that there isn't that there isn't more of this. That there isn't more of using of utilizing public spaces and uh, as a sort of pop up theater. It because well, it seems part like of it's a, it comes from. I mean, part of it might be because like traditional theater is like very tied to spaces, right, and venues. But there's a lot of stuff. I mean, like, have you guys been to the box truck parties, like the the night markets that have been going on? Have you heard of those? Um, they're, they're huge they're, in New York. We don't get them down yeah. here, but oh, we have them in the Bay Area. Yeah. They happen uh, like uh, annually or so. It's this. Uh, it's a series of events where uh, artists rent out like a box truck, like a U-Haul. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Running. So like these kind of things have been happening. Yep. Maybe not for the like the theater kind of uh, setup, but but definitely yeah. for uh, for interactive weird stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No. And and that's and that's the thing is that I think it's a ma- part of it's a matter of that the institutional structures of theater are very much tied to the spaces, uh, and the funding model is tied to spaces. Uh, yeah, money is a problem. <laughs> it, 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 yeah, it comes down to money, and and for people to get out of that th- thought process and find a new way, and that's one of the things that's exciting about crowdfunding, as a tool, is that people who have these kind of disruptive ideas can go ahead and and find a way to get the seed money in, and that's exactly what we saw with, uh, third rail projects. You know, for their, both of their two big things, they use crowdfunding, and for Grand Paradise, they they busted through so many of their goals that it caused them permitting problems in the long run because they were doing things that they they maybe the city didn't know they were doing. Uh, we'll leave it at that. Um, let's, uh, we, we, this one's going longer than I thought, but we, we, people who talk. So why don't we, why don't we uh, land on a quick round of the big surprises? So we'll keep this, this one short. We won't interject. Uh, Albert, your first step for a big surprise. What was your big surprise this year? Um, I was really surprised at how quickly the escape room thing took off. It kind of like spread, like, I mean, I thought it was going to it was going to be an exciting thing that uh that was going to pull uh like make it but um but for so many of them to show up so quickly was was crazy to me um and uh, and, and I think it was really really uplifting and really exciting to see that people want to do uh this kind of entertainment uh as um as as recreational stuff especially seeing a lot of games be built for team building style events and like company offsites and things like that. It was really uh, refreshing to see escape rooms uh, become popular as a, uh, as a um, not only as team building, but also as a, as a form of a recreational nightlife kind of thing. Well, this is what I get for letting you go first. That's going to be mine too. Uh, <laughs> and, and I mean, it was really a shock to me uh, just the scope, you know, also that LA is sort of like the, the, the big, home of it uh is really shocking to me uh there's more in la than there is anywhere else in the country uh and the production value that is being sunk into these spaces uh not all of them but some of them are is just really really impressive and really incredible and it and it does create that same sort of like oh i can't talk to you about it like the best room i've been to (laughs) here in la you know i don't want to say a thing about to anyone to say just go to the mystery of senator Payne at escape key out on the west side ask for that one go do that one that's all i'm going to tell you um and i can't wait till someone goes it's like sending people off to um a mystery movie and 
and some of these have proven to me that you can tell story in them, which is really incredible. Uh, because I, the first few I went to uh, didn't necessarily have that going on, but you can tell story, and, and you can tell story even without there being a single actor there. Some of them do it with actors, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, because I always love when see actors get jobs. But yeah, just, just how quickly they've grown. I do worry sometimes that you know maybe it's going to grow too fast because once you've done one, you've done it, and that's that. But you know, if if they hold on to these spaces and they keep on tweaking what they've got, um, it really seems to be only growing. And uh, by this time next year, probably everyone in the country will have done one. Zay, your turn. Um, I'm I'm not sure that I would qualify this as a surprise, but it, it it's the thing that occupies my mind most as something that seems kind of new, at least in New York, and that's um, large-scale, triple-A, sleep-no-more-esque inspired events that aren't based on anything, that are original material. And um, Houseworld is a really good example of this. Houseworld was, um, it was a piece that happened in uh, uh, um, in Williamsburg slash Green. It was actually sort of right in the borderline. Um, and it wasn't based on a previous um, book or play or idea or notion. It was literally this dreamscape that was opened up um, in this building. And it was a very, it was a very interesting experience. Um, and it's being carried through with the Grand Paradise, which is also not based on previous material that I understand at this point. I mean, it may, it, I may encounter something when I actually see it. Um, but how successful Houseworld was at creating its environment without any previous uh, material and how many people saw it, that it was reviewed in the New York Times, um, partially because it was branded as an immersive thing, partially because of the, the PR person that they hired. Um, but that it had its success and the way it had its success was pretty wonderful and very surprising for me. That's fantastic. And also from, from Houseworld and your interview with uh, with. Andrew, we Andrew. got, uh, we got uh, when in doubt, LARP it out. So that, that LARP, <laughs> yeah, and, that LARP and actually, and actually, I mean, and I was trying to keep it short, but um, what's interesting about about Houseworld is just exactly what um, Albert was talking about, which is the 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 way in which the sequence of events resolve themselves in Houseworld is directly created by sort of triggers or. Uh, story events that are created by the um, by the participants, um, and I mean Mackenzie and I being sort of like <laughs> a knowing what, what's going on and b Mackenzie's propensity to wanting to be at the center of things. Um, it sort of led us to the beginning, middle, and end of the entire experience, and it was really great to sort of see an evening in that at that building with a big audience shaped by our actions, and it was very rewarding. That's fantastic. All right, uh, time for state of the city. Uh, this is what I call in this section. Sort of just we looked at the past, going to kind of look at the now. Um, I'm going to make this really short on my end uh, because I, w- I do want us to look forward uh, all together in, in a minute here. Um, I think the biggest thing, actually, I'm going to steal a little bit of thunder uh, from Zay's section, uh, is that we just had at the top of the year the New York Times published a big piece about immersive work in New York, and I think that is going to be ripple effects across all of us. You know, uh, I don't know, if Zay, did you wind up wanting to talk about that piece at all, or, or should uh, I? You, you go for it. I'll, I'll, okay. I'll add color commentary if needed. Uh, and the, the main takeaway is just they, they sent someone who's like, this isn't my bag, to go do it, which is like a classic 
uh, journalistic thing to do is like go find the person who's the least likely to go do this thing that sounds really outre. Um, but if nothing else, it was it was fairly comprehensive. Like there was there was a, a lot in there. Like it felt like a lot of no stones unturned. I was impressed. Um, on that note, the the state of Los Angeles right now is you know we still don't have a AAA. But what's impressive here is we've got a lot of great homegrown talent who are just building their audience. They're building their work method. They are experimenting ferociously. No one more so than the Speakeasy Society out here. Uh, I'm just consistently impressed by how much they work. Like they work at a level better than a lot of theater companies, period. And they work uh, at a rate that's a lot higher than, than, than a lot of other theater companies. So it's just impressive to see some, a group of folks tackling it that way. Um, it's getting difficult for me to like be completely objective when I'm seeing the shows, because, but not in a sense of me being overly... Uh, forgiving it's that now that I know them personally uh, there's that extra barrier of like I've got to see their characters when some of the actors like step beyond themselves or I got to see the company grow each time so I'm only gonna become a harsher critic of their work as time goes on simply because I care Um, spare the rod spoil the child Um, other than that you know I I do think that the thing that uh, that's missing in Los Angeles right now is the, the, the footprint of something large uh, to sort of crack this space open and let people know that, uh, that this is really going on here. The, in terms of the lists, LA has the biggest list uh, of any of the three cities in terms of the newsletter. Um, I, I think that's a reflection one of me not being in San Francisco for the past year. I think that's going to change somewhat with Albert running things. Uh, and as far as New York goes, I think it's because it, it does get enough coverage uh, in the traditional arts stuff there. And the problem with LA is that our arts coverage is dying. The LA weekly who are nice enough to give us that award this year, no longer has an arts editor. It's just got a calendar section. Uh, and that's, that's rough. That's really rough. So it's dangerous times here in Los Angeles, but I am optimistic. Um, Zay, stay the city for New York. Well, I think you framed it really well. I mean, the interesting thing, one of the interesting things to me about that article is that is that the frame isn't um, here's this new thing. The frame is here's this thing that exists that is a staple and is a part of the New York scene, and I'm going to go experience it. And I think what really, really settled settled into New York over the last year and a half is that this immersive thing is – the fad phase is over and the staple phase has begun. And that article – like the arc of that article is almost the arc of, of what that is and what that means. And it will be interesting to see moving forward over the next year <coughs> – pardon me um, – how that plays out. I mean, right now, it early January is this really weird time in New York where there are a number of different theater festivals, sort of um, cutting edge 
theater festivals that are all happening at the same time. There's Under the Radar um, from the public. There is Coil from PS122. There's American Realness. There are all of these festivals. Everything happens at the same time. And, I mean, I'm seeing tons of theater right now. And I would say, I don't know, 30% of it is something that I could probably justify in one way or another putting in No Proscenium. Um, what's very strange, though, is I think what's happening in New York right now is that because this immersive thing is being considered is uh, becoming a staple, the crossover between installation art and traditional theater is no longer seeming like a crossover. So these theater festivals that have things that would, would generally be something that you'd walk into when you go into an installation in MoMA or the New Museum or the Whitney or something are now being sold as theater pieces mm. um, regularly and with no qualifying factors. I mean, I'm the sort of person who likes to buy tickets to something and not know anything about it and go see it. And two of the things I've already seen this past week um, are clearly immersive pieces, but weren't framed that way in any way, shape, or form. And I think that's what's happening in New York, which is a weird contradiction because immersive is like this weird marketing tool right now. Can I ask you a question? Uh, it's not being put out as being immersive. It's not being marketed that way. You walk in these pieces. Does the does that throw the audience, or is the New York audience savvy enough now that they roll with it? Well, I mean, it is the particular character of the New York audience to pretend that they're savvy enough to roll with anything. <laughs> <laughs> We're all gonna die from the lung <laughs> I mean, I'll I'll be Coming honest. I mean, one of <laughs> one of these immersive things that I saw, um, I think I'm not gonna say what it is because I I really really disliked it. And one of the things that I disliked is that you walk into this venue, and this is this is a, a revered theater festival, and you walk into this venue, and there are no seats, and there's no framing, you don't know how long it is, and one of the themes of the piece was inclusion and diversity. And you have people who are walking to this venue who are 60, 70 years old. You have people walking to this venue who are who have braces. And they have nowhere to go. They have nowhere to sit. They don't know where the performance is happening. There's no framing and there's zero taking care of the audience. And mm -hmm. I read reviews of this piece afterwards and that piece of it wasn't addressed. You know, it's it it's like the 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 issues and problems that an immersive piece needs to solve for its audience weren't addressed in the review of the piece. The piece was just reviewed as if it were any other piece of theater without taking all this stuff into account. And that's sort of like the weird space that I think New York is is in right now. So yeah, the audience rolled with it, but um they weren't being taken care of and that wasn't being acknowledged. That's actually huge. That's huge. We'll have to we'll we'll have to drill down on that sometime. There's a whole episode about about those kind of design limitations. So let's put a pin in that and come back around to it. Albert, uh, this is your inaugural State of the City address. So what do you what do you see? What do you see? What's the state of SF right now? So uh, it's interesting to kind of look at immersive theater as this new thing and like because because of like its uh, its place 
where it comes from, uh, or rather, like the kind of history it, it could uh, share with uh, with like this uh, participatory performance art that's been happening in the uh, in the Bay Area for a really long time now. Um, I think there are people who would say like uh, around here that like they've been doing this forever. Um, but it's always been underground and it's always been like really, really deep and really hard to find. And what I think is happening now and what we'll see in 2016 a little bit more is that there's going to be more people who are creating these sorts of absurdist performance art things and, uh, and uh, people who are inspired by, uh, by immersive theater and, uh, and, uh, game designers who want to work in, uh, in, in the, uh, the, um, real world space and physical space more. I think they're going to come up a little bit more. Um, I'm starting to see a lot of a lot of uh, people, a lot of artists um, uh, getting excited about uh, interactive experience design things. And I think we're going to see uh, more people uh, creating this work and, and sharing it with the public. Um, I've already started to see some of the stuff like trespass theater things uh, being pushed a little bit more widely. I think there's a there's a lot of um, uh, thought being put into how do we get a wider audience? How do we get it outside of our own our own little bubble and uh, and into the uh, the eyes and uh, and minds of of more uh, more people who might be interested? Fantastic, fantastic. Um, that's that is the question. That is the core question right there. How do we keep on growing this audience? That's why this podcast and why the newsletters exist in the first place. Let's look forward. We started to do a little bit there. Actually, you know what? We're going to reverse this. Albert, you're sort of already on a look forward tack, so I was going to go Zay, then you, and then me, but let's let's keep you here. Uh, is there anything specifically that you're looking forward to uh, in your nodding your head uh, in, the, in the Bay Area next year? Um, so my very first uh, immersive uh, theater that I saw was the Speakeasy in San Francisco um, when it was over in uh, near Civic Center. And uh, I that, like I had been hearing about Sleep No More, and I'd been hearing about Then She Fell, and I knew that this was a scene that exists. I heard about Agents of Coney doing their thing, um, and and all these other productions. And uh, and the first one that I really had a chance to uh, to see uh, in, in that level uh, was the Speakeasy over here. Um, as as we know that uh, they they ended that run, uh, but they've been working on, uh, on on rebuilding, and they have their space. They're going to be opening up again in 2016. I'm really excited to see it again, see how it works. Works, um, and you know, be able to contrast it again after having a chance to see some of the New York works and uh, and and new things that have been popping up uh, by all the people who have been inspired by it by this uh, this whole scene. All right, Zay, what do you got uh, that you're looking forward to in New York? Um, I I fondly remember Noah's list of uh, five most anticipated movies of 2015, and it was a list of five things, and it was all Force Awakens, Force Awakens, Force Awakens, Force Awakens. <laughs> And uh, for me, the top five immersive pieces that I'm most looking forward to in 2016 is uh, The Grand Paradise, The Grand Paradise, The Grand Paradise, The Grand Paradise, The Grand Paradise. Um, what Third Rail pulled off in Then She Fell is exquisite and, and unique. And for someone who is sort of nonplussed by Sleek No More, like, I don't know, if you can be impressed and not moved by something, that's sort of how I felt. Um but then she fell was very uh, special, and I'm really curious to see what they do with uh, space built from the ground up. What they do with something where they're not working with um, material, um, pre-existing material, yeah. um, and also having seen some of the pieces that 
uh, came together through the Kickstarter campaign and the um, the site specific dance pieces that happened uh, in Manhattan. I'm just I'm super curious and I can't wait to check it out. And uh, it's all about the Grand Paradise for me and seeing what ha- what that's all about. Oh yes. Um, for me, talking about LA, um, the thing. If I'm going to keep it down to one thing, uh, it is that there are persistent rumors once more that a certain company responsible for that uh, impressive but maybe not necessarily emotionally moving uh, piece um, who intended to bring something this past year uh, are are now on target to get something up and running here this year. Um, I tend not to talk about it on the podcast because I don't want to jinx it, but I think at this point um, the... It is out there that Sleep No More is is kind of getting a little long in the tooth. Uh, it's it's been running for years now. Uh, it I don't expect it to go anywhere anytime soon, but there's there's limitations to that show that are, are starting to kind of be seen, and something new needs to be brought forth if if that company is going to keep on doing that kind of work here in the states. And it's basically it's it's evolve and grow or not die time, but it's definitely time for them to spread their wings here uh, if, if they want to be bigger. And I think that LA, LA could go on and grow its own AAA content, uh, a phrase that I, loathe myself for using but but we could <laughs> i think you you would... set that in stone man you did that i know i know um it this is the thing like i mean to, to talk human you know we could make our own big show we could grow it i feel like it would take seven years for our own big show to emerge uh from the ground up pure bootstrap because growing that like you know I roll into a place and I get super optimistic and like, oh, this is going to go fast. And I've been watching how the VR industry is going. And like, you know what? It's going to be 2017, 2018 before mass adoption of consumer VR, like Christmas 2017 through Christmas 2018 before that really happens. And that defines. Uh, and I'm content with that. Here in L.A., I feel like it's, it's seven years if we didn't have a giant show get plopped down by people who said, we're going to make this here. And it might even implode. But it'll leave this hunger with the audience that doesn't even know what they're missing yet. And right now, before Star Wars Land opens at Disneyland, when you have all these and and sort of right right around the time Harry Potter Land opens at Universal, but maybe even before Harry Potter Land opens at Universal, if you if they can strike while the the pent up desire to have something new. Uh, that is immersive, even though people don't have those terms in their heads, they can land that. It will ignite something. And if they don't, we'll get there. We'll get there. It's just going to take us a little more time. Um, so, yeah, that's that's what I'm feeling here on Sunday, January 10th. Ask me I, again in two weeks. Maybe it'll change. 
Um, I want to say there was, there's one other thing that I am looking forward to in 2016 that I'm very curious about. And that's, I mean, one of the nice things about living in New York City is that really great productions come here, like really great international productions. It's a destination spot. You test your stuff out at other places and it comes here. And I feel like that seems to be happening more and more with immersive pieces coming to New York. And I'm really looking forward to see what, I mean, between Eight Players and uh, Broken Bone Bathtub um, and other pieces coming here as um, the next step of their engagement with their audience. And I really look forward to more pieces from um, around the U.S. and around the world coming here. Awesome. Do you guys see um, see more shows that are going to be able to travel in that way? Because one of the things that's like that, I don't know, defines the canonical um, uh, immersive theater like Sleep No More um, is this like really, really uh, high production sets and, and things like that that really don't move very well. Well, I think, I mean, this is one of the things that I loved so much about even the one thing I saw from... Pardon me from um, uh, Hamlin of from Hamlin Mobile. I mean Hamlin. I mean you could do that anywhere. Um, and also I think about um, Aaron Mee's Versailles 2015, which has now become Aaron Mee's Versailles 2016, which really you can do um, in any uh, in any even um, vaguely not even pricey, but like any real apartment in New York City or. Um, opulent house anywhere you could do that production it travels really 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 well and probably slam it up in a in a mansion here in LA absolutely I mean like that that rough side you know the um the the non-triple-a side the b side the the I don't know the indie side (laughs) um like the pop-up side like I really really am I really dig that that side of this thing that we talk about and to see more of that and to see more of that travel um, I, I don't know. I'm, I, I really hope that it does. Zay said exactly what I would have said, but more coherently. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, it, because at the heart of it, this is the thing, you know, I, when I left sleep no more, I walked out definitely engaged and blown away. And I felt that I had this incredible experience and also depressed. Cause I was like, there's no way in hell I could ever build something like that. Two nights yeah. later I left. Then she fell. And even though the production value was as high, the thing I took away was the interaction. And the thing I took away was how intimate it was. And coming from a LARP background, I knew I could build that. That's the funny thing. That's the dirty little secret. Like, it was LARPs that that gave me the language to decode how something like Then She Fell could be built in terms of thinking thinking in terms of, like, if I'm the player character and they're the non-player character, like, what's here? And it's less agency than in a LARP, but in a weird way more fulfilling because the the role I was given was very prescribed, but the emotional range was mine and mine alone to play with. And the, the, I'm in a phase now where I'm very much aware that the key to any story, any experience that involves narrative that the key is the emotion the key is the human element the plot is just the bones the plot you could describe i mean 
people have a hard time describing the plot of Sleep No More and they have to go into the shorthand because what matters is is the human element. What matters is the one-on-one. The same is true with Then She Fell. I can tell you that Then She Fell is about Alice in Wonderland and the weird relationship between Charles Dodgson and Alice Little. Um, and Lydell. it explores... Lydell, sorry. sorry. Um, it's okay. I'm always bad at that. Uh, uh, I can tell you that. Um, and, and that will tell you nothing. Well, I think, I mean, what what's really fascinating to me about the conversation that we're having this evening is that we're talking about things as wildly divergent as uh, Nordic LARP and, um, and something like, and together we are making a poem in honor of life, which could easily be, which could, you could frame that as a traditional play in the round. You, you could. Um, to a, to Hamlet Mobile, to uh, Sleep No More. And they're all part of the same medium. I mean, we're talking about a medium and a medium that has a particular kind of game mechanic. I love this phrase game mechanic because it, it, it says it's a game, which is the medium. That's the thing that's consistent throughout each one of these things. And then there's a mechanic that is different for each thing. One-on-ones in Then She Fell are different than the way one-on-ones work in Sleep No More and are different than the experience of sitting right next to someone who is both an actor and a character who is mourning the loss of their child and you making eye contact with them help them get to the next point in their journey, which in a sense is a one-on-one and is playing with all of these stuff, but it's in the same medium. And that's what, um, uh, as we've been talking about all of this stuff, that's what I keep thinking about. Like we're like, there are all these contours and edges and designs. And I mean, I'm a playwright, Noah has a background in theater as an actor. Albert is a game designer. And yet all of us see the edges and the shape of this thing. And there are so many different ways to engage with it. And it's just, I don't know, it's very exciting for me. Yeah, it's, I mean, like, I, I think a lot about uh, about how these whole, like, all of these, uh, these things are games. Once you have the audience, like, doing something, you know, like, standing up from their seat and doing any action, it becomes a game of some sort. And I am really looking forward to more of the theater people who are creating these things, engaging with the game design community and the game players to look to find lessons to, to understand better how to get the players to play and how to get the, uh, the players to invest in, in the characters that they might be cast into or whatever um, they, they want to make their mechanic. I, I really I, I'm starting to see that. Uh, I, think, I think there's more awareness of that now. And I'm, I'm really excited to see how that works. And you see a feedback loop developing between, you know, Felix of Punch Drunk references game design. And then if memory serves, the folks from Fulbright who made um, Gone, Home. Gone Home and the upcoming Tacoma, they reference Sleep No More. And so this cybernetic feedback loop has been created between this form of theater and games. And, 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 and that's, yeah. And that's when you do have something that's become a medium because it's, ref, you know, it's yeah. stealing it's there's this cycle there's this virtuous circle happening between these things it's Um, not bleeding off of like each other it's not just like a little fringe part of theater or a fringe part of games anymore it's actually kind of coming together and becoming something on its own it's it's feeding it's feeding and getting stronger uh that's a great place to end it gentlemen uh we will we will keep on kicking the tires on this format uh depending on how it uh shakes out we'll uh We'll we'll do this again at some point. Um, uh, yeah, uh, how to find us all? Uh, 
Albert, how do we find you out there on the internet? Yeah, you can uh, get on me at uh, on Twitter at uh, at Lethal Beef, um, and of course sign up for the uh, No Proscenium uh, uh, mailing list for San Francisco if you want to find out what's up in the Bay Area. Zay, <laughs> I was having a conversation with a friend the other day, and, and he was like, "Are you on Twitter?" And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "Well, what's what's your clever Twitter name?" And I said almost without thinking, Shakespeare Boy sixty nine, which <laughs> which is not my name on Twitter. But if I could somehow go back in time, that would be my name on Twitter. But my name on Twitter is actually just Zay Amsbury, at Zay Amsbury on Twitter. Uh, I used to have a clever Twitter name, and then uh, then I was told that I should change it uh, so that people could find me. So I did, and they kind of did. Uh, but sometimes I miss my clever Twitter name. Uh, I am at Noah J. Nelson uh, on the Twitter. It's all very professional. Of course, there's at no Persinium on the Twitter. Uh, you can sign up if you haven't. If you're that rare person who listens to this podcast and you, you don't get the newsletters, one, please email us or, or tweet at us because I'm curious as to who you are because maybe there's one of you. Uh, but if you are, you can sign up for any of the newsletters, including the brand new coming this week. It should release. It might have come out before we get the episode out. The West Coast Regional, which is going to have highlights from San Francisco, Los Angeles, Portland, Seattle, San Diego, and Las Vegas, because why not? It's only a few hours from Los Angeles, and it's kind of sort of West Coast. So Western Regional, um, Western Regional Champion Edition of No Persinium. Uh, that'll be a once-a-month affair, so we now have four newsletters, and if we can find someone crazy enough in Chicago to do this for free, like the rest of us do, uh, maybe we'll get one there as well. Um, until that day, until all are one, I'll see you at the show.